Law and Liberty. This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Law and Liberty. Russus J. Rushdoony. Copyright 1984 and 2009. Alicito, California. Chapter 26. Nepotism and the Law. Periodically in year in and year out, articles appear in magazines and newspapers attacking nepotism. The word nepotism has an insidious sound. It suggests criminality and vice, and it carries an unpleasant connotation. Actually, the original meaning of nepotism was favoritism to nephews in hiring, and the word has come to mean favoritism to any relative in hiring, especially in civil government. The subject of nepotism is rarely considered fairly or unemotionally. A typical treatment is Jack Anderson's, quote, let's kick relatives off the congressional payrolls, end quote, in parade. Anderson cites a variety of congressional cases, a congressman whose wife is his secretary, others who are uncles, brothers, cousins, and, in one case, even a mother-in-law. Nepotism, Anderson tells us sadly, is a bipartisan practice, and he concludes, quote, Public confidence in Congress is so low that the legislators should wipe out even the suspicion of wrongdoing. The time has come to outlaw nepotism, end quote. Anderson's article is written with a note of strong moral indignation, and Anderson quite obviously believes himself to be championing the cause of reform. The question needs to be raised, however, very earnestly and urgently, as to whether Anderson's moral perspective is not radically wrong. More than that, the whole question of nepotism needs to be reviewed. Is it really a morally questionable practice? Is there a defence possible for nepotism on the highest possible moral grounds? Is it possible that the idea that nepotism represents an immoral practice is itself indicative of a radical moral decline? Anderson's report is morally wrong because, first of all, it makes no moral distinction between fraud and honest work. The case of a congressman's wife is cited who earned $20,288.46 a year without working. Quote, Her most urgent business with his congressional office has been a request for instructions in Spanish or how to play dominoes. End quote. This clearly is a case of fraud and it should be treated as such. Money so received is morally to be regarded as theft. We can all agree that such a practice must be condemned. But it must also be insisted that to equate such a fraud with the honest work of a relative is also morally wrong. The congressman or senator who hires a relative, son, daughter or mother-in-law, and from his relatives receives faithful and honest work, cannot be equated with a man who defrauds the government. To make this equation is a sign of moral delinquency. Second, Anderson's article never raises the all-important question, what is wrong with nepotism? Is there anything wrong with hiring a relative to work for you in government or business if that relative gives good and faithful service? To understand the moral issues involved in nepotism, let us examine its history very briefly. The word nepotism was coined several centuries ago to describe the practice of various popes of hiring their nephews to fulfil important roles in the Vatican and in the Papal States. The practice gained a special prominence under Pope Nicholas III toward the close of the 13th century. 
It was also very severely criticised as part of the practice of Sixtus VI in the 15th century. The Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, was also notorious for his nepotism. The practice was finally outlawed by Pope Innocent XI and XII in the 17th century. There is no doubt that some of the scandals connected with some relatives give both nepotism and the church a bad name, but it seems hardly likely that Alexander VI would have been any better morally had he not practised nepotism. Not all popes practised nepotism for corrupt reasons. Most had important considerations in mind. They needed the confidential help of someone of unquestioned loyalty who would enable them to execute their plans of action without betrayal or hesitation. Only a relative could give this kind of loyalty, and hence the use of relatives. Where the plan of action was morally sound, there was no harm and much good in the use of trustworthy men. Where a programme is morally unsound, it makes no difference who was used to execute it. The situation of congressmen and senators is very similar. They are exceedingly vulnerable to bad public relations, a bad press, infiltration by interests subversive of their own purposes and of their office, and the bribing of confidential secretaries and aides is a commonplace fact of business administration as well as in the administration of offices in the civil government. Under such circumstances, a man's most trustworthy associates are the members of his family. They have an honest vested interest in protecting him in the discharge of his duties. It is true that this may mean that two, three or four or five salaries will go to a man and his relatives. But as long as it is for work honestly done, there is no moral wrong in this practice. It is often a necessary safeguard and security measure, basic to a sound administration of office. Similarly, in the business world, many a man makes room in his office for relatives or for his sons, and why not? If his relatives fail to do their work properly, it is he who suffers for it business-wise. Similarly, if a congressman's wife proves to be a poor secretary and offends the public, the congressman is the loser. We have not touched on the basic moral issue as yet. Why this strange belief that the employment of a member of the family is morally wrong? In the medieval church, the criticism came in part from the monastic hostility to the family. It was assumed that a churchman should be dead to the world and to his family. In the modern world, there is an even more anti-family motive at work. Inheritance taxes, income taxes, property laws and other legislation have worked to limit the independence and authority of the family. The family has less and less rights and less and less independence. Instead of assuming that a man's best helpers are the members of his family, it is assumed that there is some moral wrong in having family help. Articles such as Anderson's attack responsible men and classify them with men guilty of fraudulent practices simply because they rely on family help in sensitive positions. Family loyalty, one of the most basic supports any man can have, is in effect denied to men in public office. Such an attitude is morally indefensible. Moreover, it is basically hostile to the biblical faith, which stresses the centrality of the family in every aspect of life. The Bible does not treat nepotism as a crime, but rather as a moral necessity. If nepotism is a crime and a moral wrong, then we are condemning God, who in some cases specifically required or commanded it. 
It was God who called and ordained that Aaron, Moses' brother, should become Moses' closest associate. When Moses became the civil head of the Hebrew commonwealth, Aaron, by God's ordination, became the religious head, the high priest, and Miriam, his sister, became a prophetess. As long as Aaron and Miriam fulfilled their duties, God blessed them. When they disobeyed and presumed in their relationship, they were punished. King David relied very extensively on his family, and especially his cousins, such as Joab, in the government of Israel. And virtually every monarch in the Bible relied on relatives without anything but God's blessing, as long as all moved in terms of God's law. The Bible is clearly favourable to the use of relatives in civil administration, and it is clearly not morally permissible for a Christian to condemn the legitimate and useful employment of relatives. Therefore, whenever and wherever nepotism is condemned, it is condemned on a moral principle which is not biblical and is in fact anti-biblical. The office of high priest in the time of Jesus Christ was passed around the family of Annas, the high priest, to his son Eliezer and his son-in-law Caiaphas. The biblical condemnation of these men is not because of their nepotism, but because of their unbelief. Two of the disciples, James and John, were cousins of Jesus Christ. The Bible, from start to finish, is strongly family-oriented. Provided the members of a family are godly, there is no wrong in their employment and much good. We face today an anti-biblical morality, which is at war with biblical morality, and therefore the family. It is called morally wrong to employ members of our family, but it is treated as somehow virtuous to trust her mortal enemies. Parents are told that it is wrong for them to assist their children in learning how to read, but they are urged to go into the slums and help other people's children. Parents are treated as moral lepers for being partial to their children above all others, and one prominent educator has called it an anti-democratic and aristocratic sentiment. Somehow it is insinuated that it is morally wrong to be partial to your own family. All this anti-family talk and sentiment goes against the law of God as declared in the Bible and in the laws of being. These attacks on the family are part of a movement to replace a familistic order with another order, a statist one, to replace personal relations with impersonal ones. We have abolished, or are trying to abolish, the strongly personal feelings that generate family loyalties. We are trying family associations in business administration or in civil government as somehow immoral, and by batteries of tests and requirements, we are depersonalising office and civil service. Supposedly, we are abolishing prejudice and discrimination. In actuality, we are, first, establishing prejudice legally against the family. Second, by depersonalising offices and the civil service, we are not furthering love, but rather enmity. We abolish loyalty, and by abolishing loyalty, we diminish integrity and faithfulness. It is high time we abandon the idea that any set of tests, laws or rules can give us a perfect social order or a perfect group of employees or civil service. Nothing is more productive of social chaos than the attempt to create a perfect system. Men are by nature sinners. They can be saved sinners, but they will never in this world be perfect, sinless men. We need to live in terms of the realities of this world 
We cannot gain progress by striving after an impossible perfection and destroying, at the same time, the God-given foundations of social order. The family is basic to God's order. It is man's basic social security and responsibility, the area of closest loyalty and strength. How dare we deny to public officials the right to rely on their most loyal supporters, their relatives, in their administration of office? Every man in office has a right to depend on his family and to help them secure employment. Instead of being morally wrong, it is morally commendable as long as honest work is rendered for honest wages. Is it not time we drop this extensive hostility to the family? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.